Morning, church. Well, this Easter Sunday morning, we are continuing our exposition of the book of Ephesians. And as we said a moment ago, in God's kind providence, we come to a text that has us consider the great purpose of the whole operation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This morning we contemplate from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, Christ's work of redemption. In the flow of Paul's thought process in this first chapter, he continues on in the text that we're looking at this morning to praise God for for, for blessing Christians with every spiritual blessing by detailing what these blessings are. And in the four verses that we consider today, Paul identifies that one of these blessings is none other than redemption. And as he unpacks this great blessing, we find that he breaks this teaching on redemption down into three parts. He speaks to us of the reality of redemption, Redemption at its essence and nature. And then he speaks to us about the revelation of redemption. How God has made it known. And lastly, he speaks to us about the result of redemption. The reality of redemption, the revelation of redemption, and the result of redemption we find in the text. And so these being the breakdown of the text, they will serve as our outline this morning. Now, before we dive in and consider the text in its parts, let's read it in its entirety together. We're going to read actually this morning starting in verse 3 down through verse 10. Hear what the Spirit says to the church, Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you? Fathers, we come now to consider your word. We understand, Lord, that we are engaged in a supernatural task. Lord, even this morning, the text will tell us that naturally we are not capable of understanding your truth, your revealed truth. And so, God, we ask now that you would help us 
by the power of your spirit. Lord, please, God, as we consider your word, we ask that you would illuminate it to us. Father, enlighten us by your word. And as you give us the light of your word, Lord, we we do pray that you would use it to change us, God. Father, we pray this morning that you would search out our hearts and find out the sin that is in us. Lord, we pray that you would draw us to repent of that sin. Lord, we pray that you would breathe on the embers of what are often our cold hearts and that you would bring to a roaring flame a passion and love and zeal for you because of what you have done in Christ, Lord. Help us now, God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We pick up Paul's line of thinking in verse 7 as we consider the reality of redemption. In verse 7, Paul says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The phrase, in Him, is referring back to verse 3, where Paul said that the Father has blessed us in Christ. Therefore, we read here, in Christ we have this redemption. Redemption is a term that is often used by Christians to refer to the experience of salvation. But, as is the case with many rich Bible Terms, we often grow immune to appreciating the, the fullness of its meaning. And that's exacerbated by the fact that it's not only used by Christians. The secular world uses this term redemption as well. Often the secular world using it in ways that are contrary, in ways that have little to do with the sense in which the scriptures use it. You might hear secular sources in employing it to say that one has redeemed themselves from a blunder or a mistake that they've made. And in that way, the world comes to embrace redemption as an idea of right standing that exists on a a sliding scale. Someone can move back and forth from good standing to bad over and over again, redeeming themselves, you might hear it said. But all of that is counter to the biblical concept of redemption. First of all, what this passage and and others make clear is that redemption is not something that we can accomplish ourselves. Additionally, the biblical idea of redemption does not set right standing with God on an ever-changing or or sliding scale. But in, in order to see that, we have to understand the way that Paul uses this term and where he gets it from. The term redemption is not original to the mind of Paul. It's a term that he borrowed from first century Roman culture. Specifically, he borrowed it from the slave trading market. Redemption was a word used to refer to payment for a slave. As such, redemption... We should understand this way. It is the saving act of Jesus to buy back sinners out of their bondage. 
The Apostle Peter uses a similar idea to describe this saving work of Christ, saying that a ransom has been paid on our behalf. Now naturally then the question arises, what necessitates this kind of transaction, this this redemption payment? And Paul actually articulates this in the first few verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians. It's there where he describes the natural state of man, the, the state into which we were born as a consequence of Adam's fall. And, and, and this is, is fundamental to understand, friends. If we're to grasp the reality of redemption, we have to understand the state into which we were born that necessitated this work of redemption. Make no mistake. The whole of the Christian faith rests on this reality of redemption. And if we're going to take hold of this truth, either for the, for the first time or as a, a renewed appreciation of it, we, we must first understand what necessitates redemption. Due to our sinful nature, we, we are born subject to a threefold enslavement, Paul tells us. Look there, just flip the page to chapter 2 in Ephesians and consider verses 1 through 3 with me. Paul says we are born subject to a threefold enslavement. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's the first enslavement, death. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is, enslaved to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we are enslaved first to death, both physical and spiritual. Second, we are enslaved to Satan, continually deceived by his lies. And third, we are enslaved to our depraved, sinful nature, our flesh. We're enslaved, which is to to quote one preacher, it's like being tied to a block of lead that, that drags us down and holds us captive. And the result of this enslavement, Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 3, is that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Making use of this idea of slave transactions, Paul draws the reader's attention to the fact that in order to be in right standing with God, a price must be paid. Since people are born captive to sin and act on that sin, willfully following the slave master of sin, a price must be paid in order for God to take ownership of His own. That price is, as Paul says, His blood. Throughout the Scriptures, the the cost of rebellion against God is nothing other than death. Romans 6.23, you know it, says... For the wages of sin is death. And that may sound harsh, but that's owing to the fact that we don't rightly appreciate the sovereign authority and holiness of God. 
He is the creator and designed his creation to live in loving fellowship with him. Yet in order for his creation to walk in harmony and fellowship with him, they had to live in harmony with the way that he designed the created order. This was clear from the beginning when God laid out the parameters for Adam and Eve to enjoy a life of blessing and fellowship with God. When God gave instruction that they could eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, He told them in Genesis 2.17, For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And upon their rebellion against God, they and every person that descended from them did fall under the curse of death, both physically and spiritually. And this condition pervading humanity since the fall is grave. How could man be made alive spiritually after this? How could man escape their bondage to physical and spiritual death? The answer is through redemption. We must be bought back from the slave masters of death and Satan and sin. How could we experience life with God, both now and for eternity? How could people escape the deceitful grip of Satan and the God-hating lies that he promotes? How could we be released from the, the power of sin that entangles us in our thoughts and our motivations that reject God and, and all of His designs? Friends, it's by no other means than redemption. We need to be delivered, be bought back. Praise be to God. That is just the business that He's in. Even in the garden, we see God making a way for His people to be restored to life and fellowship with Him. And throughout the Scriptures, God makes provisions for His people to experience this restoration. This is what He's doing in the prescriptions of the Mosaic Covenant. And the fullness of God's redemptive plan becomes even more clear in the Davidic Covenant. In a real sense, you can say that the whole history of the Bible is the story of God redeeming His people. That's what the story of the Israelites' escape from Egypt is all about. God delivering His people from the bondage of slavery to Pharaoh typifies the buying back of His people from bondage to sin and Satan and death. That's why we read from Exodus 15 earlier. The song of Moses is really the song of the redeemed. The Lord is my strength, my song, and He has become my salvation. And throughout the Bible, as is highlighted in our passage today, this is God's project. Remember verse 3. Who, who is Paul praising for this whole operation? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And here in verse 7 we read, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The whole thing is passive on our part. It's God who is accomplishing this redemption. And this is only logical. 
Because being in bondage to sin, with, with sin corrupting all of our desires and motivations, we would never seek this out in our natural state. The, the initiative and motive has to be God's, not man's. But not only is this redemption accomplished by God's motive, it's also accomplished by His own means. Look again at verse 7. We read, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Again, Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. And Leviticus says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so the author of Hebrews goes on to tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why, friends, the Old Testament is laden with bloodshed under the sacrificial system. God purposed that His people could relate to Him on the basis of payment for sins through blood that was shed in substitution for their own blood. But the sacrificial system was only a temporary solution. Again, the author of Hebrews speaks to us saying, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system only pointed to the real and true and final answer for God's how God's people could be ransomed from their captivity to Satan and sin and death. The blood of bulls and goats might suffice for the forgiveness of specific occurrences of sin, but it can never make one right with God. That blood could could speak on their behalf in terms of forgiveness for sin in single occurrences. But you think about the weight of that over the span of a life and how much bloodshed, how much sacrifice must be made even for a day in my life. That blood wouldn't do, friends. The blood of animals isn't righteous blood. An animal's not righteous. So it couldn't speak righteousness on their behalf. And if we were to sacrifice ourselves to appease God, that wouldn't do either. We have our own sins that need to be paid for. Our blood isn't spotless and righteous so that its shedding would speak righteousness before God on our part. No. If we are to appear as spotless and without blemish before God, which is the only way that one can come into the presence of a holy and righteous God, then we need to be covered by blood that is spotless and without blemish, you see. The only one with that kind of blood is the divine Son of God. The Son of God who became man for us to fulfill the law of God on our behalf. So that in Him, 
That is, in union with Him. The shedding of His blood would bring, as Paul says here, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We are trespassers against God. Not only by our nature, but in our desires, in our deeds. We trespass the holy, righteous character of God. We can never pay for our own, sin, or our own sins because one sin against an infinite, eternal God demands infinite, eternal punishment. We need blood to be shed on our behalf by one that has no sin to pay for himself. We need the infinite, eternal wrath of God to be poured out on one who is infinite and eternal himself so that he could swallow up in a definite amount of time what we could not is absorb in an eternity in hell. And that's just what God has purchased for us through the blood of Christ. And we can attribute this infinite, eternal price that's paid on our behalf to nothing other than what Paul calls the riches of His grace. It's grace that brings this gift to us, friends. But the, the, the depth and perversity of our sin is incalculable. And so it takes incalculable riches, Paul says, of grace to address it. Glory be to God. I break out in a hymn right now. I'll save you that. As the passage progresses, Paul's not content to extol only the reality of redemption, but goes on to extol the glorious grace of God in his revelation of redemption. So we can consider now the revelation of redemption. Paul has established in verse 7 that this redemption God has worked for believers in Christ is according to the riches of His grace. But he further expounds on this grace to show that it is the source of our even coming to understand this saving work of God in Christ. Look at the text again. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. So Paul's really saying two things here. First, he is saying that the plan of redemption is a display of the infinite wisdom of God. That is to say, not only is God to be praised for the, the motive and the means of redemption, but He's also to be praised for the, the wise method of redemption. The method of redemption is what He's getting at in saying that God lavished this grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. Church, the gospel is a wonder to behold. The idea that sinners can be reconciled to a holy God is nothing short of a preposterous claim. Sinners cannot come before the presence of God in their sin. And we can't work to earn salvation because we're corrupt to the core. 
Every thought, motivation, and deed of ours is influenced by sin. So for God to accept us would be to dishonor and transgress His own holiness. His own righteous standard. He who is the righteous judge and lawgiver would have to say, Ah, well, sin's really no big deal. My my holiness isn't all that great. Who am I anyway to say that I'm so different from my creation to uphold such a high standard to have fellowship with me? You see, friends, this is no trivial matter. The problem that sin poses is no small dilemma. For God to unconditionally accept sinners in their sin would be to undermine and minimize the very nature of His being. To put it simply, for God to freely accept sinners in their sin would be for God to commit idolatry. Lifting up the importance and priority of man over and above His holy nature. But Paul praises the wisdom and insight of God in verse 8 because in eternity past, he devised a plan to both preserve his righteousness and accept sinners because they could be accepted on a basis of conditions met not by them, but by another. This is what Paul explains more fully in Romans chapter 3. Listen, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The wisdom of God in the reality and the revelation of the gospel is astounding, friends. And it is grace that He has exercised that wisdom to produce our redemption. But not only does Paul give praise to God for God's wisdom to devise such a plan, the second thing that he is doing here is giving praise to God for the revelation of this plan to us. He praises the the grace of God which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. But then he goes on to say that He has made known to us the mystery of His will. It's one thing for God to work out this divine plan of redemption on our part. That's glorious enough. But, But in the Gospel... God actually works by His grace to make us see the fullness of His eternal plan that had been hidden for ages past. The Old Testament made known that that the solution to sin was, was through blood. 
But what blood would be sufficient for the full and final salvation of God's elect was, was totally and completely a matter of trusting God to provide a more full and final solution. They were in the dark as to how God would accomplish their complete salvation. They, they were walking not by the sight of an ultimate sacrifice, but by faith in God to provide one. Yet now, with the coming of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God to bring the fullness of salvation to mankind has been revealed. Jesus reveals it himself in Matthew 20, saying, The Son of Man came not to serve, but uh, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the miraculous grace of God that causes men to see and comprehend this reality, bringing them from darkness to light. This is why Paul says, praising God in 2 Corinthians 4, that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a gracious act of God that He has not only redeemed us, but He has revealed to us His eternal plan concerning how He might redeem us. All of the power and wisdom of God for redemption are revealed nowhere else but in Christ. What can we do? But, but join with Paul as he often breaks out in doxology as he's writing about God's work of redemption, saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Praise God. The reality of redemption is glorious, friends. The, the revelation of redemption is also glorious. But finally, we must consider the glory of the result of redemption this morning. The result of redemption is what Paul goes on to talk about. Paul says in verse 9 that God has made known to us the mystery of His will. And verse 9 goes on to tell us that His will... Excuse me. Verse 9 goes on to tell us that His will has been enacted in space-time history according to His purpose. And that means that the drive and desire to accomplish this originates in the mind of God, totally separate from any outside influence. One commentator puts it this way. The the whole phraseology denotes in this transaction, God was not influenced by any external consideration. The whole reason for it sprang from within Himself. God is not reactionary, church. He did not look down the corridors of time and see the condition of man only then to to determine how He could salvage his creation to accomplish what he desired. No. In the eternal 
sovereign, free mind and will of God. He determined according to His purpose, the text tells us, not only how He would redeem His people, but what purpose He would redeem them for. And that purpose, Paul reveals to us in verse 10. Starting in verse 9, we read, According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we find here that God's purpose in redeeming His elect is to bring all things together in Christ. To quote another commentator, the the full meaning of this expression is to gather again under one head things which had originally been one and have since been separated. As I said earlier, man was made in his original state to walk in loving fellowship with God and and in submission to God. But rebelling against God, that fellowship was disrupted. And the fall of man involved more than separation just between God and man. The presence of sin separated men from men. And since that dreadful moment in the garden, men have been at odds with their fellow men. But in Christ... God has purpose to make an end of all that. All of that. We will find that the the, the chord that Paul is striking here will reverberate throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians. The the, the most dominant theme throughout this epistle epistle is unity in Christ. There will be more about that in sermons to come. But here we observe that this must be a remarkable and most precious thing because it is the end at which God aims in this whole work of redemption. To unite all things in Christ is the purpose of God's saving acts, Paul tells us. All His divine wisdom and power are aimed at this goal. To make all things come together under one head in Christ. Make no mistake. This, this is not unity just for the sake of unity. Okay? This isn't a mere kumbaya experience that Paul's talking about here. In the work of redemption, God is restoring the elect to the original intention with which He created all things. And that is to, to live in harmonious fellowship with both other creatures and the Creator through submission to Him. Sin brought disorder upon the world that God created. But in Christ, God is making a new creation in which perfect order will be restored. And this order is not just in this world here below. This is a cosmic plan of God that Paul says here, He will unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So the redeemed will join with the angelic hosts and the heavenly creatures to worship, serve, and submit to God with Christ as our head. Paul spells this out even more clearly, speaking of the Lord Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, saying, By Him, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, if you are united to Christ by faith this morning, you should know And take comfort in the fact that by the working of God's grace, you are involved in a cosmic scheme of God that was planned in eternity past according to the wisdom and power of God. So often, the Christian life can seem dull and monotonous. We engage in the spiritual disciplines, praying, reading the scriptures, pursuing holiness, fighting the same sins day after day. We live lives that seem ordinary and mundane, dealing with the same frustrations of relationships and work life and loads of laundry that seem to never go away. And we're tempted to think, at least I'm tempted to think, is this really all there is to this Christian life? We might even read missionary tales of those like Adoniram Judson or or Hudson Taylor and think, am I missing it? Am I really engaged in anything of eternal significance? In fact, This is the reason why so many churches in our culture are perpetually initiating new campaigns and initiatives. Silly and eternally insignificant as a lot of them clearly are. It's to give people a sense that they're involved in some kind of movement. Something significant and meaningful. But... What verses 9 and 10 make clear is that if you are among the elect who God has redeemed out of bondage to death and sin and Satan, you are engaged in a celestial plan of God. In fact, it is the cosmic plan and purpose of God in redemption. A plan which He works with all wisdom and power, making us part of something more significant and meaningful than any mind of man could ever conceive. All in Christ. So what does that mean? Friends, that means that we can have the most simple of churches. We can lead the most simple of Christian lives, folding laundry, fighting sin, and pursuing faithfulness to God, all while trusting that God in Christ has been pleased according to His purpose to involve us in the plan and purpose at which all creation is aimed. 
Friends, the applications of this passage are simply too wide ranging and, 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 and significant to draw out this morning. It's taken all of our time this morning just to adequately unpack the riches of God's grace that He's made known to us here. Meditation on this text should lead us to praise the grace of God which motivates His work of redemption. It should lead us to a hatred of sin as we consider the costly means by which this redemption has been secured. Namely, this precious blood of Christ that's been shed to attain it. There's a lifetime of contemplation on the revelation of God's method of bringing about such redemption. All of which lead to one end. The end to which all creation is aimed and will one day be fully realized this end. But, but it's an end that we can engage in even today. And that is the end of uniting our hearts and minds and voices and lives with the redeemed from every age and from every tribe, tongue, and nation to serve and submit and give worship to the God of our salvation. Amen? Amen. May it be so. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this work of redemption. And I just ask now, God, that that you would do that, Lord. That you would cause us to see the price that's been paid. You would cause us to savor the grace that's been lavished upon us in such a way that we would indeed work to this end. That our hearts and minds would be united with the redeemed from every age, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all that we might serve and submit and give worship to you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.